Hi, everyone. This is Dave Newbert, Marketing Director for Eagle Eye Power Solutions, and welcome to our podcast, DC Power Hour, the show where we will discuss everything related to, you guessed it, critical DC power solutions. So charge up, power on, or do whatever it takes to get yourself excited for the episode of DC Power Hour. Welcome back to another episode of Eagle Eye Power Solutions DC Power Hour. Today's topics will cover the importance of battery room safety when it comes to personnel, property, and maintaining compliance. We'll talk about some of the issues that can occur when safety precautions are overlooked, and we'll discuss what to do when there's a battery spill or accident at a battery room. All right, and here we are again, ready for Battery Blarney with George and Alan. And today we're going to talk about the vital importance of battery room safety. And I know this is another topic that these guys are very passionate about and provide a really great deal of insight. I know that at Eagle Eye, we we use them quite a bit to run things by them because we know that they've got a lot of really important good things to say. So without further ado, I'll pass it over to you guys. We'll start with George this time. George, are battery room safety precautions adequately addressed, do you think, and followed in most cases, or is it the exception? I believe in most cases, it's the exception rather than the rule. A lot of the basic OSHA rules are ignored, one being that thou shalt not enter a battery room unless you have been fully trained to the level of the task you're about to undertake. And that actually includes MD that goes in for a visit. They should get a full safety briefing before they go into the battery room. You don't see that happening. And that battery training is also supposed to be repeated every two years. And I, what I've seen is that people, when I say about battery training, the general comment is, oh, well, we do the arc flash training every two years, so that covers it because that's electrical. And the answer to that is, no, it doesn't. Because one of the biggest challenges we have is that the existing arc flash calculations do not cover a battery. The arc flash calculations, the limit to the arc flash event is governed by the fuse or circuit breaker protection that's in the circuit. The problem is that we don't put fuses or circuit breakers inside batteries. So the amount of power is there depending on the size of the battery. And uh, I know that Alan has also been involved in some of these, and we've had many discussions at various conferences about it. So I'll pass it back to him for his thoughts on where we are with that. Okay. Well, first of all, let me preempt what I'm going to say is that I know I can speak for myself, and certainly you'll understand, George, is that we've been there, done that. We've been guilty as well. Oh, We've taken shortcuts. We've toyed around with 480 volt plants with not taking adequate precautions. So our bad, but uh, just want people, our folks out there, I don't want them to think that we've always done it right. But uh, we've learned a lot over the years. George mentions NFPA 70E, which is electrical safety in the workplace. There are several other codes and standards out there that apply to battery and charger safety. There's a code of federal regulations. That's 1926-441. I bet you nobody's heard of that. What's that called? It's called the safety for batteries and battery charging. There's also a lot of international fire codes. There's some other NFPA, National Fire Protection Association codes, other than NFPA 70E. There's NFPA 70, there's NFPA 1, 
problem is that some of them don't agree with each other. And uh, a friend of mine used to say, the nice thing about codes and standards is that there's so many to choose from. So you just choose the standard code you want to work with, but make sure you talk to the electrical inspector or the fire marshal before you do that. So one of the things I think that needs to be done is there needs to be more of a harmonizing effort between the various codes. Some of them, I was reading one recently, still talks about sealed batteries when they refer to valve-regulated lead-acid batteries. Well, as we all know, there's no such thing. Well, there are sealed batteries, those throwaway flashlight-type batteries. But batteries we're talking about in the stationary battery business, they're not sealed. They're not maintenance-free. So some of the codes need to address this. There are other standards, which I'll talk about quite shortly, but I just want to hand it back to George for a minute. Yeah, you're right. Your comment about, you know, there's so many to speak from. I know that one of the things I talk about in some of the classes I do is that your best advice for that is check with the, whether it's the fire inspector or the electrical inspector that's involved in the project you're working on, check which version of the code they are using. Because although the code gets basically revised every three or four years, depending on which one it is, the local jurisdictions, in order to use it, they have to adopt it officially in a meeting. And a lot of the smaller jurisdictions you get involved with don't do that. They don't do it. So I've been in a Myself, I've been in a job where we did it exactly to the latest version of the code, and I got picked up on it because it didn't conform to the version of the code that the electrical inspector was using. The only trouble is his was 10 years out of date, and then you had to apply diplomacy and work with them on it. It was no good arguing as such because you don't ever argue with inspectors because they have a, a simple answer. It's, we're in charge, you do it. We need harmony amongst the standards, and then we need the training and the understanding about what people are trying to do within the battery room, because there are sometimes what is specified as a safety requirement, in fact, makes the task more risky than it is before. And we can talk about that a little bit later when we talk about how it applies to maintenance. Would you agree, Alan? Take it referring to things like spill containment. I agree. But uh, one of the things I think we should be looking at in way of harmonizing the code is the IEEE input. And each of the uh, standards, guides, practices IEEE has usually has a little section in it about battery safety. And we need to issue one document on battery safety and borrow from some of the other documents. I think that would be a great help because the IEEE is getting more and more of an acceptance now among people, not just North America, but internationally. So also because there are other certain segments of the industry, like uh, UPS, which we'll talk about a little bit in a minute, where safety and ability to maintain, sometimes are completely ignored. So. I'll take a breather and go back to you, George. Okay, yeah. I was, I was guess, um, as you said, I've spoken to him as one of them, but the one I was thinking more about was the actual R-flash regulations. What I said earlier about the fact is that the battery effectively is unlimited power unless you break it up into smaller sections. 
But the if somebody has done a calculation, they will come up that you have to wear the absolute maximum arc flash protection to do the work on it. But you cannot do even a routine testing with one of the omic testers, for instance, if you have the full suit on, the hard hat, the visor down, and two set of rubber gloves and then a set of heavy uh, leather gloves to protect them, you can't operate a switch on a, a set of uh, probes. And you're trying to work in very, very narrow space. If they want to start making it safer, they should be leaning on the manufacturers of the battery cabinets to make them with adequate clearance to be worked on. But that's probably not going to happen because the customer wants it to be small and look fancy. Looking small and fancy are not two words that should be used in conjunction with batteries and safety. There needs to be space around them. There needs to be access to them. And you need to be able to work on them without getting into trouble. UPS industry has been getting away with it for years. And I think it's criminal. And all it's going to have to make us one person killed or something working on a UPS battery, or maybe more than one to get. But the other thing, other than lack of uh, maintainability, a lack of ventilation, the other way is sometimes the way the batteries are connected together. Now, uh, if you have a battery stack, say for utility or a telecommunications application, or even a large UPS application, and you configure that battery so the positive and negative takeoffs on the battery are right next to each other, you've got an accident waiting to happen. So a lot more attention needs to be made to the layout of the battery because if you lay out the battery positive and negative terminals, the battery plant positive and negative terminals, more than six feet apart, which is an average person's wingspan hand-to-hand, then there's a lot less chance of you getting a high-voltage shock. So on that system as well, on the same uh, area, one of the things you read in a lot of safety documents is that first thing you should do is de-energize the system. Well, as George has already mentioned, you, know, you can't de-energize a battery. What you can do is you can segment it. If you have a 240-volt battery, even a 480-volt battery, 120-volt battery as well, if you lay it out and give it the ability to be segmented where you can break it down into uh, 100 volt or less segments. Although I think NFPA 70 has gone back to 50 volts. The truth is that no testing has ever been done on 50 volts or between 50 volts and 100 volts uh, DC. But uh, you can see where I'm going is that if you can segment the battery to less than 100 volts, which most people consider not to be a a lethal voltage, then it's a lot safer to work on. So, you know, that needs to be addressed as well. The problem you have with that, Alan, is that, you know, I understand exactly what you're saying, but it's clearly I've been doing maintenance more recently than you have, because if I want to measure the battery voltage and I'm the uh, single tech in the room, and you've got the connections at either end sort of 20 feet apart, it's not as easy. Because, you know, gorilla I might be on occasions, my arms aren't that long to use the two probes. So I much prefer them to be close together. But I, I understand what you're saying. 
But it comes back to if you know what you're doing, that does not become unsafe. It's simply it's unsafe when you don't know what you're doing. That's really to start with. That's probably to me as a key point. But the other point you're making about taking the battery offline, I totally agree with you. I'd love to be able to do it. Apart from the fact that how many systems do we know, especially within the utility industry, that what's supporting that substation is one battery? You can't take it offline because Murphy's Law says that the moment I open that battery up, we're going to have a thunderstorm and there's going to be some outages. So in many ways, some of that safety actually comes into the way the systems are being designed. Would you agree? Yes, but uh, tongue-in-cheek, George, I'd ask you, what were you doing in a battery room, high-voltage battery room, on your own? You obviously haven't worked for these companies recently. Two people to go and do battery maintenance, we can't afford that. Well, if you look at some rules and regulations, that's a no-no. You need a safety guy there. They used to laugh us in the old days when two of us were working on something and one of the guys would have a brush in his hand, a old-fashioned broomstick. Uh, that wasn't to clean the floor with. That was to drag somebody off a hot system if necessary. But anyway, just to turn it around a little bit, talking about safety, we have to look at the installation aspect as well. And one of the things is that there's an organization, not OSHA, but it's called NIOSH. The National Institute of Operational Safety and Health. And that contains a section about lifting. And if you were to follow the guidelines in the NIOSH equation, you would find that it is unsafe for somebody, one person, to lift an object, i.e., a battery unit of more than 40 pounds above three feet. And since most of the injuries occurred, occurring in the building installation field are back injuries. That's something that's often ignored. And even when talking about safety, even when people use, okay, we're not going to manually lift, we're going to use a mechanical lift, whether it's a pallet stacker or something like that, you see them putting batteries on it onto a steel platform, loading them into a steel rack. So what do you think the problem's there, George? Oh, I'm fully aware of what the problems are, you know. Been there, done that. As you said, the one thing when we talk about safety here is, no, neither of us are blameless in any way, shape, or form. We have all done absolutely stupid things to get the job done. And unfortunately, I don't see that changing in many ways because Again, it goes back because the buildings are in such a way that you have to do some of these crazy things and the way they've been previously installed, for instance. But I come back to it is that if you understand what the problems are, you can at least take a series of precautions where you're trying to do it. But it's having the understanding about what the challenges are and what you're going to face doing it. As you said, lifting batteries into racks is a perfect example of it. I can take a 12-volt unit, put it on a metal lift, and put it up and put it into a battery cabinet absolutely safely. But then I have to take that same lift and put a front-facing battery up and try to put it in, at which point basically the two terminals of the battery are facing the steel backing plate of that lift I'm using. 
So I've got to make sure that that is protected by some insulators so that they don't get shoved backwards and short out. Again, I hate to say it, but it keeps coming back to cost because the good quality lifts that cover all of that with proper insulation, the correct paint being used, stuff like that, they cost more than the cheaper ones to buy. And what do people buy? The cheap ones. Can't win them. Yeah. So we've talked a lot about the different reasons that people cut corners with safety. They're not trained. They don't have the education. The facilities aren't up to code or where they should be. We need to streamline regulations. And then are people ever just lazy or is it they don't understand the severity of what can happen when the safety precautions are not the number one priority on any job, which they should be? Alan? A lot of time it's time. Probably about 50% of the battery installation work being carried out at the moment is is not new systems, it's replacement batteries. And uh, often it has to be done in off-peak hours, say typically between 12 o'clock midnight and 5 o'clock in the morning. And, okay, so you've got a task to do. You have a finite amount of time to do it. So this is where cutting corners comes in a lot. There's not really enough prep work carried out for the task in hand. There's inadequate job description sheets, inadequate safety precaution conferences before the task. You want to get there at 11.30 at night, start 12, come hell or high water, you have to have the battery system back up by five o'clock in the morning. So screw the spun. A lot of the time it's time, but uh, there are other aspects as well. I'm sure George will mention some of those. Time is probably one of the biggest ones, but to amplify on one of the things that Alan talked about was this lack of briefing, lack of understanding. When I first started doing it many, many years ago, with involved with Alan at the time, actually, we used to always make a point of part of the cost of doing a job was that you went on site ahead of the job and you did a complete survey to understand what the challenges were and what was required in order to do the job often before the job was actually priced, so we understood what to put in to do the job. That concept of doing a survey seems to have disappeared on every aspect. And to me, that's the first dangerous point about it, because you don't know what the local conditions are until you get there. And if you're arriving there at 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night in order to start, and you suddenly find you really need something else to do the job safely, Guess what? You have to do without it because you can't get it at that time of night. Even in the best of places, Lowe's and Home Depot close at nine o'clock. That's it. So you're left on your to come up with a way to do it as safely as possible. Yeah, a lot of the fault is in the, the job description or the customer gives you or the, uh, the usually no method of procedure. Uh, sometimes there's a statement of work. A lot of times that statement of work doesn't take into effect or into consideration the uh, need of a site survey. So company A, who follows all the rules and regulations, is going to bid one price, and company B, who takes shortcuts, is going to bid a much lower price. So a lot of that comes into aspect. But the other thing is, what we used to always do is have a spare battery, small spare battery system. It was a lot easier to do with 48-volt and 120-volt plants where you had a battery that you could hook up to the system while you were replacing the other battery or even working on the other battery. That cost a lot of money. 
So unless it's spelled out in the uh, statement of work that you shall provide a 15-minute battery to be hooked up while you're working on the system, not only is it useful then, but if you have that oh-shoot moment at 5 o'clock in the morning when you realize you're not going to be able to get back online on time, at least you have, you have some insurance there. Most power outages last less than one or two seconds, actually. So uh, most of the utility companies, at least the ones I've worked with, anything less than a power outage of, of less than uh, one minute, they don't even log it. So that 15-minute battery, 10-minute battery you have in reserve can be a lifesaver, but it costs money. Okay, so let's wrap it up with one, I guess, final question or part of this topic. If you could use a scare tactic, I guess, to scare somebody into why should they make sure safety is the number one priority on any job site in a battery room, even based on any experience you've had, what would you say to somebody, don't let this happen to you because this could happen? George, do you have any examples or things to draw on there? I think taking care and understanding what could happen. I, you know, I will quote my own situation I got myself into. We were changing a battery out on a military base out in California in the middle of the desert. As Alan said, perfect example, we were in a room that previously had had a vented lead acid battery and they had built these little concrete walls to act as spool containment. But we were replacing it with a front access large battery and we had to basically get it in. The, the corridor was a little bit narrow to get it into the room. And when we went to lower it onto the lift, lift it up, turn it through 90 degrees to start stacking. My colleague and I were lowering one of the batteries down onto the lift. And as I pulled my hand away to get out of the way as we dropped for the last little bit, I discovered that my steel-toed boot was in the way. And my hand did not quite get out of the way fast enough. And I said a few very rude words. I had my gloves on, thank goodness. The gloves weren't torn, but when I pulled my glove off, there was a lot of blood. And the, eventually, it ended up with 18 stitches in it to stitch my finger back together again. The one good thing was, as the medic said to me when I was taken to sick quarters, the medical sick quarters on the base was, that uh, this is where we train the, the tank drivers for Iraq. And we're good at stitching up hands because they keep dropping the load of the tank down on their fingers. He had a sense of humor, I'll say that for him. But that was a perfect example of something that we were doing everything within we could do, but that battery was no more than half an inch out as we lowered it. That's how it caught my finger. So, you know, yes, even the smallest things, you have to take care. You've got to try and take it into account. It was fixed, I know. Finger's perfectly okay now. But if that had been an electrical, or so, I, that battery had shorted out and we'd had a, an explosion or something, I mean, it could have been a totally different situation. So you have to be just ultra careful because it, even when you do everything right, it can still go wrong. Other good method is uh, to have plenty of pictures. And we both have pictures of accidents that have happened. But the problem is you show this, these pictures to the customer and you never get to the higher-ups. You never get to the people that are paying for the thing. So you're wasting your time. So I can show pictures of, actually, some of them are a little bit hard to take, but uh, there's also a lot of videos online about uh, accidents and art flash. 
some art crash incidents. But the bottom line is, you can never get to the people that are paying the, paying the piper. So uh, I don't know what the answer is. I guess it's like bad road intersections and everything else. You have to have a body count before they're going to pay any attention. Right. And I guess that as long as the technicians are in the battery room and trained as well as they can be, and hopefully they're able to speak up at least if they find themselves in a situation they don't want to be in. But there's a lot more to that complicated subject. So thank you both. Any final thoughts on this as we wrap up? When you say that uh, we've had instances, not at Eagle Eye, but uh, I've had instances of previous companies in that the technician or technicians have refused to do a job because of safety concerns. And the customer said, okay, that's fine. We no longer need you. And they go and get another company that's cheaper. Maybe it's not as professional uh, to finish the job. That has happened. So I don't think there's any way of preventing that. Somebody needs to be held accountable and never seems to get back to the the people at the top. Yeah, exactly. And I guess when a human life is at stake, I guess that's more important than any job anyway. So hopefully it works itself out. All right. Thanks a lot, guys. Appreciate it. And that'll do it for this week's Battery Blarney. And we'll talk to you again next time. Well, thank you. I've enjoyed it. Thanks. Thanks, David. So this is a segment I'm pretty excited about. Since I am a marketing guy and I'm stuck in the office all the time, it's great to actually hear from the guys in the field that are actually in the trenches doing the work every day that we're marketing about. So this segment, Field Report, is a look into the world of these field technicians. And today with us, we have Eagle Eyes Dustin Parker, who is our field tech manager down in the Kansas City area. And I want to talk to Dustin a little bit about what's going on and what he's seeing in the battery rooms where he's working, also maybe what he's grilling out this weekend on his barbecue. So just really getting into some good stuff here. Dustin, how are you doing today? Doing pretty good. I'm not doing too bad. Can't complain too much, although nobody ever does. Sounds good. Well, you're doing a podcast right now and you're not out doing some battery work. So we've been talking in this episode about safety. Obviously, you guys are out there in the field every day. You got to be concerned with safety. What do you guys do out there on a daily basis as you get to a new job site and enter a new battery room? So, of course, we always have a job briefing every morning when we get to the site. Just kind of go over what could happen, what could go wrong, what the potentials are, what kind of battery we're going to be working on, the voltage potential that we have. Make sure everybody's got their arc flash clothes on, of course, safety glasses. We have isolating matting that we can use to cover the batteries if needed and gloves. And just to make sure everybody's really, really aware of their surroundings and what we're doing. Some of these rooms are kind of hot, so we got to make sure that they notate that. There's usually no service, so we try to make sure that they know where their exits and endpoints are, where they can get out if there's ever an issue. But mainly just make sure all the guys are comfortable with what they're doing. It's probably the biggest part of safety. You don't want nobody to go in to a battery room and work on a battery if they don't feel comfortable with what they're doing. Yeah, absolutely. What do you guys do if you come across that situation where you don't feel 100% comfortable in a situation? So we go back to our JSA and we reevaluate what the steps are of what we're doing and go to the steps where the person feels uncomfortable. So we say we got to go and we're going to put the vigilant on a 540 volt string and the guy's like, I've never worked on a 540 volt string. I don't feel comfortable with this. What's the hazards associated with that task? So we'll just come back to the JSA and say, hey, so you have the 540 volts here, but you have your isolating matting just kind of covered around where you're at. 
We also use uh, pool noodles, which is, as some people might think is unethical, but we put it on uh, the cross bracing of the rack so you can kind of rest your arms on it because all these batteries are grounded out to the uh, facility ground because there's a potential of half the voltage of the battery string on that. So you got to make sure that they're aware of that as well. Make sure that they're not zapping themselves every time they touch a wire by touching the rack. Yeah, absolutely. So I know you've been into a number of different job sites in a number of locations. How often do you think you enter a facility and you feel 100% safe? Or is there maybe 20% of the time you're thinking maybe this isn't the safest location? Or what do you think from a sort of percentage? I would say it's maybe 5 or 10% that I'll never feel safe. I've got a pretty good background with working with DC power and in the battery room. So it's really, I guess, when you go in to make sure that you're 100% ready to do what you're doing. You should never want to go into a room feel unsafe. So I don't know, for me, I don't ever really feel unsafe, but there's been some situations where I'm like, I ain't doing this. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you don't want to take any shortcuts when it comes to your safety and your life, right? So. Oh, absolutely not. Never too important to walk away from something like that. So another really important question is I want to know what kind of safety precautions you take when you're grilling at home. I mean, do you guys, do you ever get the (laughs) fire going? You got to have a fire extinguisher on hand or just have at it usually we just have at it but we always have the hose right there ready to go because i mean i got two smokers an electric smoker i got my grill so getting ready to get the blackstone put together i'm gonna maybe try that this weekend i don't know awesome that's what i'm talking about so why don't you give us one final tip on maybe on safety and then i want to get your one tip on grilling i want one of each go okay so my biggest deal with safety is always make sure your stuff is 100% to what it was when you took it out of the package. You don't want ever go in with scratch glasses or work boots that aren't fit for standing on in all day or FR clothes that got holes in them. So you always want to make sure that you inspect your PPE before you start your job. Then my biggest tip for grilling is just go with it. I always just throw stuff together and just try new things because you never know what you're going to find. Awesome. So what are you trying out this weekend? Anything cool? So I think we're going to get a brisket and do a brisket on the smoker for tomorrow night as the fight. So we have some friends coming over and we're going to watch the fight and hopefully have some good brisket. Awesome. Sounds good. I'll be down in a couple hours. All right. All right. (laughs) I wish. All right. Thanks, Dustin. Really appreciate it. I hope we can talk to you again on the program and, and get your insights from the field. So thanks a lot, man. Have a great weekend. Yeah, thanks. Absolutely. Looking forward to it. Thanks again for tuning in to today's DC Power Hour. We hope you guys enjoyed discussing these really important topics about battery room safety, cleanup and spill containment, and other pressing issues regarding safety in the workplace. For more information on any of these topics or other critical power solutions, visit our website at eepowersolutions.com. Check us out next time. We'll discuss the effects of the pandemic on supply chain deliveries and ways to get ahead of the curve in an unpredictable global economy. We hope you can join us next time. And in the meantime, if you have any questions for the Battery Blarney Duo or anything else you want us to discuss in next week's episode, please email us at info at eepowersolutions.com. Thanks again for listening. Talk to you then.